Good morning, church. Hey, grab your Bibles. Open up to Romans 8. Title of our sermon this morning is Our Sure Salvation. Our Sure Salvation. Church, the Lord's at work. We just threw a lot of things at you. Thanks for your patience. That's just all signs that God is working in our midst. He is to be praised. Uh, We continue in our We Believe series. Last week we looked at the doctrine of Christ who Christ is, what Christ has done for us. And this week, we turn our eyes to the doctrine of our salvation. How are we saved? And what does it mean that we're saved? And what, how will we continue to be saved? And one of the best places we can look is Romans 8, a glorious chap- chapter and a glorious letter, a gospel-rich letter. And we could spend our time all morning reading the whole chapter and talking about it this This morning, we're going to focus specifically on verses 28 to verse 30. So direct your eyes to God's holy word, reading from chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. This is God's holy and authoritative, perfect word for us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Lord, bless now the preaching and believing of your word. Thank you for your word, Lord, that guides us, that is a lamp to our feet. Please guide us now. Amen. Amen. There are many things, church, in this life that we do not know. There are baseball games, basketball games going on all the time. We don't know who's going to win those games. There are things on the bottom of the deep sea that we are still discovering that we don't really know what's down there. Our brains, we're still discovering how they actually function. We don't know truly how our brain functions outside of the Lord continuing to sustain them. There are so, much, so many things we do not know. We live amid profound uncertainty. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know what trials may be coming to us this year. We may be in good health right now, but we don't know if that good health will sustain We will continue to be in good health. We may have children that we are preaching the gospel to. We cannot guarantee. We do not know if they will be saved. We cannot even guarantee our personal safety. We can have measures in place, but we cannot even guarantee that. But we as people, we're we're prone to, to, and we long for certainty and security and assurance What the world overzealously pursues through alarm systems or through world-class doctors, through security bonds and bank accounts, security, comfort, assurance. And many of us this morning may be longing for security and comfort and assurance. And that's you. Are you weary this morning? Are you fearful? Are you worried? Are you doubting? Are you struggling with unbelief? Are you striving for assurance and feel like you cannot grab hold of it? Good news is that the Lord knows what it's like to live in a broken world. We we talked about this last week, right? He lived in a broken 
world as God the Son incarnate. He knows it. He sees you. And He, through His Word, He wants to give you hope and comfort. That's what He wants to do this morning, is to encourage you, church. This, this passage, Romans 8, 28-30, this is a passage that Pastor R.A. Torrey called a soft pillow for a tired heart. Oh boy, I know when my heart's tired, I just need a soft pillow. And here we have it in God's Word. God wants to strengthen your faith, church. He wants to shore up your foundation. He wants to give you assurance for the days ahead. You see, we, like, we need a strong anchor to steady our souls amid a world of uncertainty. Something guaranteed to keep us upright amid that uncertainty, amid the trials and the storms that come our way. And here in our text, in the Word, we have a sure guarantee for us. Listen, what, what knowledge can we have that will give us, give us courage when we're faced with things that we cannot understand or cannot figure out that can allow us to have unwavering devotion to the Lord, even when it feels like everything is against us? What can we know? What can we believe in those moments? We can know, as our passage tells us, that we have a God who loves us, who is providentially working for us in all things according to his eternal purposes for us. Right, so let's direct our eyes to our text again. This is what we see, the God's unchanging promise for us, rooted in his unbreakable purposes for us. That's what keeps us. That is the anchor for our souls, and it calls for lives that are marked by unwavering pursuit of the Lord and obedience to him. Those will be our three points this morning, how we'll walk through our, our text. So our point number one is unchanging promise, and we're going to see this in verse 28. Unchanging promise. Look at verse 28 again with me. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, before we grab that verse, Romans 8, 28, and throw it on a pillow or a coffee mug and stamp it there and say, done, that's some verse, life verse right there. That's a wonderful verse. Before we do that, Let's remember the context of Romans 8. If we go back to the beginning of Romans 8, Paul begins it by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, he says, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, he says, we have been adopted as God's sons and daughters. We are heirs of God. We're heirs with Christ. In verse 16, This is what we've been saved into. These are the eternal blessings that we have through Christ Jesus, right? Hallelujah. That's how he's tracing the gospel. And in light of the gospel, Romans 8, he just says, this is what's true for you if you are in Christ. And then at verse 17, he turns and he says this. After all that, he says this in 17. This is ours provided we suffer with Christ. Paul, I thought we were talking about no condemnation and adoption and you use this, this word called suffer and suffering. And there's a turn in the chapter. The reality that Christians will experience suffering. That sin is in bondage. Sin means the whole world is in bondage. The world is groaning with storms and disasters and trials. And we know that, Paul says, verse 22, we know that, we see it, we experience it, and the world groans, and we Grown. We, saved by God, groan. We experience the loss of loved ones. We experience chronic pain. 
We have estranged relationships. We have broken relationships. We look to the past with regret. We long to receive the eternal blessings that are promised to us in Scripture. And we groan, rightly, living in a fallen world. We groan to the Lord. And sometimes Paul says we cry out to the Lord. As we groan, we cry out to Him. And in verse 26, he says, in, in those moments, we don't even know what to pray for. We need the Spirit to help us, to give us words, because we don't even know what to pray for at moments in our lives. We don't even know what's coming our way, and sometimes we don't even know what to pray for. We've had those moments when you go to the Lord, and you go, ah, I don't know, Lord. I'm, I'm lamenting, I'm groaning, and I don't even know what to say. Please help me. The Spirit helps us in those moments. And then Paul makes this turn here in verse 28. He says, here's what we do know. In light of the uncertainty, in light of things that we don't know, in light of words we don't know what to say, verse 28, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So, so church, this, this is our anchor. This is our anchor for us. Living in the truth of this steadfast promise means profound hope. It means assurance. It means confidence. I mean, look at the promise God has given to you. We have assurance that God is working. We, we know we have assurance. We know where and how he's working. He actually told us that. He said, in all things he's working. He doesn't say God is working in some things or in the good things that we think are good. He's working in all things. We know the goal of his providential work for our good. And we know who he's working for. For those who love God who are called according to his purpose. That's us. So here is the fountain of all promises. God is working for you in all things for your good. And this promise is for those who have believed the gospel, for those who love God. The gospel, as our statement of faith says, is the good news of Jesus Christ and all that he did in his life and death and resurrection and ascension to accomplish salvation for humanity. The good news, it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe, providing hope for the lost and abiding comfort and strength for the believer. Believer, do you want hope? Do you want abiding strength and comfort? It's in the gospel. It's in what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, what he has not just offered, but what he has accomplished for you in your salvation at the cross. That's a guarantee. Everything else comes short. Everything else in this world is going to come short of assurance and security. And there's no guarantee that God is working for good for everybody in this world. The guarantee is for those who love God, for those who have been saved. This this is a promise for those who have heard the call from Jesus, who have come to him in faith, who have repented of their sin, who have come before the holy God and said, there's not enough that I can do. I can't be a nice enough person. I can't have all this money and give it away and do things to save myself. I'm drenched in my sin before a holy God and I need a savior. And Jesus Christ is that Savior, the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. And so they humbly, willingly, in faith, repent of their sins, and they come and believe in Jesus Christ. And that promise is for them. So the call here is if you have not done that, if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, none of this is going to make sense, this promise. If you have not come to Jesus Christ and repented, you do not have this promise that God is working in your life for your good. So the call for you to come to Jesus Christ today in faith and in repentance. 
Listen, for those of us who are saved, who who have come to Christ in humility, who have been united to Jesus Christ by faith, these truths are ours, and it means we can wake up every morning, no matter what pain or anxiety or fear that we wake up with. In the gospel, we see that what God has done to us and for us, that gives us tremendous faith and unspeakable, unshakable joy. Not a glib shallow joy not a glib shallow outlook on life yeah god's gonna work this all for good in my life just what he's gonna do i'm not sure if i believe it but just what he does nothing glib not a denial that bad things actually do happen right it's not what this says bad things happen the things that happen to us aren't always good but the promise is that god uses those things and transforms them for our good those are his eternal purposes and the realization that no situation and no event is an obstacle to the work that God does in our lives. He's going, listen, God is a God who's going to get his purposes done. He's, he says, I'm going to accomplish something, he's going to do it. That's the God we serve. And so for those who love God, his purposes for you will always be for your good. And we know that we love God. That's my question. How do we know that we love God? If it's for those who love God, it's the ones who love God are the same ones. You see it on the text. The same ones who are also called according to His purpose. The same ones who God has set His love on them and has called them according to His purpose. Those are the ones. Because He loved us first, those are the ones who love God. And He's working now according to His eternal purpose in our lives. This is a God's unchangeable, steadfast promise to you, Christian. And the foundation for this promise, the foundation that means it's going to happen, the guarantee that means it's going to happen, it's in God's unbreakable purpose for you. So point number two, God's unbreakable purpose. Unbreakable purpose, and we're going to see this in verses 29 to 30. We need a foundation for this promise, and we have it in God's unbreakable purpose. Now here's the thing. We read verse 28, right? We love it. It's a wonderful promise to us. We just proclaimed it. It's unchanging. It's steadfast. But there's a reason Paul didn't stop at verse 28 and end his letter. He went on. Keep reading. Verses 29, verse 30. You see the word for at the beginning of verse 29. Good word to circle. For tells you that what he just said, he's going to build a foundation now. This is why verse 28 is actually true. It's because of verse 29 and 30. So he says, here's your foundation. God's going to work all things together for good, for those according, called according to God and his purpose. And he says this, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So verse 28 God's working for your good, but then we got to ask, what, what's the good? Is it money? Is it stuff? Is it the good that I want? So I can think of a lot of things that are good. Man, I hope God's working that way for my good, for the things that my definition of good. But, but here's the goal. Here's the good. That's why we got to keep reading. Here's the good and the goal that God is working in your life. You want to know what God is doing in every circumstance of your life? If you're a child believer, if you're a teen believer, if you're a single believer, if you're a married believer, 
If you're an elderly believer, what's God doing in this situation? Like, what is God doing right now in my life? Verse 29 says that he is working so that you might be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good God's after in your life, that you might be conformed to the image of his son. God is working to make you and me like Jesus as you trust him, as you submit to him in your situation. That's his purpose. That's his purpose. So what's your situation right now? What's your situation right now? God's purpose in that situation, in that moment, in that event, is to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what he's getting done right now. It's his purpose and what he's doing. It's like, a, it's like a potter who works with clay to shape and to mold and to smooth out and conform that clay. And the clay doesn't look at the potter and say, man, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like this image that you're trying to create me into. God's at work shaping this clay into the image that he has designed for it. And it means he's going to shape, he's going to mold He's going to pound it. He's going to do what it needs to be done so that the image he has in his mind for it will represent the image on that last day of Jesus Christ. Down to the very core, we will resemble Jesus Christ as we're conformed to him. And so every moment, every moment of blessing and suffering for for you and me is being overseen and it's being crafted by God for us to be like Christ. And this is a purpose that will be completed, going to be completed on that last day when we see God face to face, when we are truly conformed. He's conforming us now, but there will be a day when we are truly conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. When we, when we take off this marred, this, this image of God that's been marred and distorted by sin because of Adam's sin and because we continue to sin, it's distorted, and we take on the image of Jesus Christ, the second Adam the firstborn, the supreme one, and we look truly inside and out like him. And in that moment, we will be changed. We will be truly grafted eternally into his family. That's the end that God sees. That's the image he's after, and it is a glorious image that is our hope. But remember, this, that's our hope, right? But our life is filled with so many uncertainties. How do we know this is going to happen? How do you think about this? How, how do you know that tomorrow morning you're going to wake up still ready to follow Jesus? Still a Christian. Still being one of those who love God. Because you know what? If it's up to me, it's up to us, we're going to mess up. We're going to fail. We're going to reject God. We're going to turn our backs on God. Our faith will fail. So, what hope do we have day after day after day that we will be like Jesus, that we'll be with Jesus forever? What's our security? Listen, here's, here's the, the hope, the vision that we need to put in front of our eyes constantly. It's all from God. It's all from God and it's not up to us. That our salvation, as, as, as Jacob just said, our, our salvation is beginning to end an act of God. It's divine initiative according to a divine plan. It's for divine purposes because we in ourselves were powerless to save ourselves. Scripture says that we're dead in our sins. We're unable to respond to the call of salvation in ourselves. And yet God has set his love on us in such a way that he does all the work and we receive all the blessing. He does all the work, we receive all the blessing. 
what we see in verses 29 to 30. That's why Paul didn't stop at verse 28. You want assurance that God is working good in your life? Look at your salvation. Look at what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. God has acted to save you, to forgive you, and to declare that there is no more condemnation for your sins. And so the same God who saved us and poured out his spirit into our hearts that prays for us, that intercedes for us, it's the same God who promises to keep us to the end. And it means that even when everything else feels like it's against us, the whole world feels like it's against us, the trials of this life, the suffering feels like it's against us, he is for us because he has been for us, he will be for us for all eternity. And that means that we are the most humble, grateful, devoted, joyful followers of Christ. We're the happiest people on the planet because God is for us and he will be for us. God has been merciful to us and he will be merciful to us. Our salvation is a gift, so he receives all the glory. Now it's important to, I think it's important to hold a balance here, right? You look at scripture and over and over again, it makes it clear that every man, every woman, every child, when they hear the gospel, they are responsible for their response to the gospel. They hear the message to repent, to believe in Jesus Christ, to confess Him as Lord, and it is their responsibility to respond to that call. No one's going to die and meet God at heaven and say, well, well, wait a minute, I never got a chance. I blame somebody else for my lack of response. Each one of us is responsible to respond to what Jesus has told us. Repent and believe. So there's a, a sense where each of us is responsible, but then we go back to Scripture and we see over and over and over again that the Lord is sovereign, right? That it's a gift. That God is over all our salvation. That He saw us in eternity past and He gave us a new heart that was able to respond in faith and that He keeps us to the end. So somehow we see both man's responsibility and God's sovereignty bound together, married together in Scripture over and over again. And we lift it up and say, this is just a profound mystery I'm responsible to respond to God, and yet it's a gift. He's over it all. He's in all. He's before all. And so that should lead us. It's a profound mystery. The things, secret things belong to the Lord, and it should lead us to wonder that he would call us, and it should lead us to amazement and to worship. Because it's, it's as we peel back our salvation, like a, like a curtain, and we, we, we pull it back, it fuels our worship and our wonder. And we live in the joy of it, which is why we keep coming back to it every single week, over and over again, every single day. What we see, as we, we see what Paul is doing, he's peeling back the curtain of what the Lord has been doing for all eternity for us. It's what theologians call a golden chain of salvation in verses 29 to 30. Five links in the chain of salvation, all with God as the actor, God as the subject, and so you and I can look at the beginning of the chain all the way back in eternity past, and we can follow the chain all the way into eternity future. And what do we see over and over again? We see God, and we see God, and we see God at work on our behalf. And it gives us confidence that because he saved us in eternity past, he will keep us into eternity future. God's purpose for us is eternal, and it cannot be broken. And so we see this chain. And I realize the irony of this. We just sang a song. The last song we just sang said, every chain is breakable, right? Every chain is breakable. Kids, you probably have had a chain before, plastic. You can break it. 
And maybe there's some strong chains that you give to your dad or somebody strong, and they maybe can break that chain. And the song's talking about every chain is breakable. Sin, addiction, it's breakable because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it frees you. There's one chain that can't be broken. It's the chain of our salvation. Because when you're freed from the chains of addiction, when you're freed from the chains of sin, you come to Christ, you realize that He keeps you in His hands forever. And this is an unbreakable chain from eternity past to eternity future. And where's this chain begin? Eternity past. Five links to the chain. The first one says that God foreknew us. We're foreknown. Verse 29, God foreknew those he saved. And some take this word foreknew to mean that God foresaw. Like he looked into the distant future and he saw each one of us And he saw that we were going to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. And so he said, yeah, I'm going to save them. I'm going to save them because they're going to respond. He knew something about us, right? He foresaw. But but the word foreknew here can essentially mean that God foreloved us. More than that, he just knew something about us, that he loved us in eternity past. He lovingly chose us. We look at the Old Testament, right? To know somebody, Adam knew his wife. Or we look at God knowing Israel. And the word means that God sets his covenant love on his chosen people. So for example, Amos 3 verse 2 says, You, Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You think God knew all the families of the earth? Yeah. But this specific family, he chose this one. He knew them. He set his love on them. Or we go into Romans 11 2, a couple chapters later. Paul writes, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. His people whom he foreknew. So here in Romans 8, Paul's saying that he didn't just know something about us, that he knew us in eternity past. And it's incredible. We, we probe here into the, man, we have the revelation of Scripture, which means we can probe into the very mind of God and what he was thinking about in eternity past. And we see that he set his love on us before we were even born, those whom he foreknew. And then secondly, Paul writes that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And here's, here's the thing. Here's the key. That when I say chain of salvation, when, when theologians use that term, here's the key. Here's what we've got to make sure we see. It doesn't say that some of those God foreknew he predestined, and some of those he predestined he then called. It's those he, whom he foreknew he then predestined, he then called, he then justified, he then glorified. It's the same person beginning to end and every word applies to that same person. Here we see that God's love in eternity past sets into motion the trajectory for the rest of our lives. That God charted out the destination. He predestined, he charted out the destination for our lives and he divinely decided that we would come to saving faith in him like a train that he sets into motion and he says, go, here's your destination, here's your ticket, no obstacle is going to stop this train. And in eternity past, he predestined us with a specific destination of glorification. Ephesians 1 says, God blessed you and chose you according to his purpose before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God saved us and called us because of his own purpose and grace in Christ Jesus before times eternal. Or 1 Peter 1 says we were foreknown, right? Foreknown, past, to a living hope, right now, 
to an inheritance that it's unfading and imperishable kept in heaven for you by God's power, unbreakable. So listen, before we even took our first breath, before we even took that breath, God determined that he would, after our last breath, transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Man, who, who here has ever started a project, right? You had a good idea to do something. You started a project, and you didn't get it done. Like, you, you really had a great idea. Some of you are thinking things right now. They're like, yeah, it's a project that I have on my to-do list. Man, I haven't got it. I'm thinking of something that is sitting in my dresser from like nine years ago that I have not done. I have not, and I don't know if it'll ever get done. And I got projects like that that I've given up on. I thought it was a great idea at the time, and I realized, no, no, not really. Can you all relate with this? Like, you, you have a great idea, and it just doesn't happen. Here's my point. God has an idea. God has a purpose. He accomplishes that purpose. He gets it done. He doesn't say, I'm going to, I have a good idea. Maybe it'll happen. Oh, but that person messed up. Maybe, never mind. I'm going to have a purpose for somebody else now. If God has a purpose for you, he will complete it to the day of salvation. Nothing will stand in his way. Philippians 1.6 says this, I'm sure of this, right? Assurance. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Assurance, And this is what we see throughout this chain as we follow it along. Assurance, comfort, security. Verse 30 says that those whom he predestined, he also called. So this third link is calling. He called us. God guaranteed that there would be a day in your life that you would hear the gospel and that you would respond to it. More than just like the gospel being preached, because it happens on a Sunday morning and on TV and on radio, and some people hear it, and they kind of turn off the TV or they turn off the radio. They walk out. They don't respond to it. What Paul's talking about here, because these same people who are going to be called are going to be glorified someday, this is a calling that is guaranteed. 100% of the people who are called in this way are going to come to saving faith. It's more of a divine summons. I called you, God is saying, and you will come to faith. It's what theologians call an effectual call. And you can liken it to this. It's like Jesus, when he, remember Jesus went to Lazarus' tomb, right? And Lazarus has been dead for a few days. It's pretty obvious. He's dead. And Jesus goes up to the tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus doesn't stay dead, or he doesn't open one eye and say, ah, that's nice, Jesus. That sounds like a good thing to do, but I'm good here. I'm kind of comfy in my tomb here. Lazarus hears the call, and he gets up, breath fills his lungs again, his heart beats again, and he walks out of the tomb. He responds to Jesus' call. And I think we can liken that to what's going on here. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our sins, right? If, if he had not opened our eyes and breathed new life into us and given us a new heart that actually beat, you know what's going to happen? We're going to stay dead in our sins, rejecting him. When, when, when somebody's dead on the street, you can go and shout in his ear all you want. He's not going to wake up. He's going to stay dead. And Scripture describes how we were. But God ordained that there would be a moment in our lives that we dead people that we were would hear the gospel call and respond. 
that our, that our lungs would fill up, that our heart would be, we would actually be given a new heart in that moment. And we would follow him. Not because of something we did, because dead people can't do much, because of something God did for us. Praise the Lord. That's what God did for you, if you're in Christ. And at that moment, you were justified. Justified. As we go along in this chain, verse 30 says, Those whom he called, he also justified. You see, when you receive Christ, and all they did for you, you were united to him in his life and death and resurrection, which means that when God now sees you, he sees Christ. He declares you righteous, sins completely paid for in Christ, and, and perfect obedience from Christ given to you, credited to your account. That's why Paul can say now in Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, you are guiltless. Sins paid for. It means when you want to condemn yourself or when Satan tempts you to despair for falling short again, you, you look up and you see him who made an end to all your sin. And you remind yourself and you remind Satan, I'm guiltless because of Jesus Christ. I am clothed in Christ's righteousness. That's what it means to be justified, that God has declared you righteous and it's a once for all declaration. He doesn't say you're righteous, but now you're not anymore. You are righteous in Jesus Christ if you have come to him in faith. You are fully justified. And so we stand justified in right relationship with God, adopted into his family with Christ. He's the firstborn, the supreme brother whom we follow and worship. And it's not a result of work so that no man may boast, but it is the gift of God. And finally, if you're justified, if you're forgiven, if you're adopted into God's family with the Spirit indwelling you, that Spirit's not going to just like, hey, I'm indwelling you and I'm going to leave. That Spirit's indwelling you now, praying for you, interceding for you. It means He will not let you go. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. You know how God sees you in Christ? Justified and glorified. What we see here is the completion of God's purposes for you. The certainty that He will finish what he started in your life, that you will be glorified. Listen, God doesn't just foreknow people and then predestine them and then call them and then justify them and say, ah, you know what, they sinned again. They doubted me again. You know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go find somebody else to have good eternal purposes for, not this one anymore. God doesn't do that. God sees it through to the end. He, he justifies us and he promises to hold on to us through our sin and through our doubt and through our suffering, through our affliction, all the way on to glory. You see how this word is in the past tense? Like, right, grammar class, let's go back. He, he, he also glorified. Now, he will glorify them. He also glorified. How can that be? How can it be past tense, Paul? Something's going to happen in the future. He also glorified. Here's what Doug, Doug Moo says in his commentary. He says, Paul is looking at the believer's glorification from the standpoint of God, who has already decreed that it should take place. While not yet experienced, the divine decision to glorify those who have been justified has already been made. The issue has already been settled. Settled. Decision made. Done. You will be glorified. You can't strike that away. It's not like that last chain is going to fall off the link. You will be glorified if you are in Christ Jesus. 
That chain cannot be broken. And this, friends, when we see it, when we see it amidst our suffering, amidst our uncertainty, amidst our doubt, it is glorious. Christ will hold on to us. We live in an already not yet world, which means that we are chosen by God. We've been adopted into his family, right? We've been justified. We will be glorified, but we experience temptation and trial, which means when we've got this distant future, eternal purpose in mind, we know that that's going to happen, and that invades our right now, our present, right now, whatever we're facing, whatever comes our way, the anchor for our souls is that from the standpoint of God, He's going to get it done. He's going to glorify us. Eternal purposes are eternal. They're not just temporary. They are eternal purposes, and He will see us through to the end. God is working out unbreakable purposes for us, friends. That's reality. That's assurance. And so what do we do with all this? We follow hard after him, whatever comes our way. Point number three, our unwavering pursuit, briefly. What better way to respond to this than how Paul responds in Romans 8? Look at what he says. Immediately after rehearsing all these truths, he says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I was reminded, just looking at this glorious truth, I was reminded this week of Exodus 14, when God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians. God let his people go, right? And they're at the Red Sea, and they're at the Red Sea waiting, what do we do next? And they turn around, they look in the past, and they look behind them, and they see Egyptian soldiers coming after them. And then they spin around, and they see a Red Sea that they can't cross. And what do good Israelites do? Moses, man, I liked it better in Egypt. You led us out here to die. We're going to die right here in about five minutes. That's what's about to happen. And they moan, and they groan, and they grumble, and they complain. And uh, listen to what Moses says to them. He looks the Israelites in the eyes and he says, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Church, we have seen the salvation of the Lord. And we will see the salvation of the Lord. We are eternally loved, we're foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. God saved you. He will not forsake you. So fear not and stand firm. And then rest in that. 
Confidence, right? Rest in that truth. And after you're done resting in the truth, get up and go live for Christ in obedience to him. This is the evidence that he has saved you. And we don't, we don't just rest, we get up and we go serve him. Listen, in light of our salvation, we live confident and joyful lives with a steadfast devotion to aligning ourselves with God's goal. Right? What's God's goal? What's God's goal for us? What's his good for us? To conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. So we align our lives with that. We know it's going to happen, but we conform our lives right now in every situation, in every area, to conforming ourselves to the image of Jesus Christ. An unwavering pursuit of holiness and sanctification. Pastor Martin Lord-Jones says about this passage, ultimately the proof of a right approach to these doctrines is that you find in them the greatest urge to holiness and sanctification. You see, seeing what God has done for us in Christ's completed work for us, eternity past, eternity future, should motivate us to pursue Christ's likeness, to be zealous for good works to glorify him. Here's how our statement of faith puts it. It says resting. Right? We want to rest. It's been done. Resting in Christ's finished work never renders our effort unnecessary, but rather enables the joyful pursuit of loving and pleasing God. Compelled by grace, believers grow in the knowledge of God, obey Christ's commands, walk by the Spirit, mortify sin, and pursue God's priorities and purposes. So church, commit yourself and your life anew to devotion to Christ. Specifically, this week, pick a specific area that you want to see growth in, you want to see the Lord work in, and pursue Christ in that area. Be like Christ in that area and see God work in your life. And as you pray and commune with God in His Word and fellowship with believers and walk in obedience to Christ, the Spirit who lives inside of you, who is praying for you, will strengthen your faith and give you assurance. And listen, what do we do with assurance and hope and confidence that we have in Jesus Christ? We open our mouths, as Joel was just saying a bit ago, we open our mouths and we share it. Our world needs hope. Our world needs good news. So we open our mouths and we share it with the world. The wonder of our salvation should, should fuel, should motivate, should motivate us telling others about it. As we look at God's mercy and grace to us in Christ Jesus, we turn and we tell others about it, the hope that we have. So let's go out confidently and joyfully proclaiming God's mercy and grace to this world who needs to know. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you. That's the right response to doctrines like this. We thank you. We didn't do anything, and yet you chose us and you eternally protect us in Christ. Lord, please continue to show your work to your servants and your great power to their children. Please establish the work of your hands and please establish the work of our hands as we seek to rest in what you've done for us and now respond in obedience to Christ. Please enable us by the power of your spirit to pursue Christ-likeness, to glorify you, to tell others of you. Lord, would you do it? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me.